You know, mankind has always had a tremendous fascination with the future. Uh, there has and continues to be a, a great curiosity about what lies ahead. There are even those who make a handsome living trying to predict future events as far as uh, political changes, governmental changes around the world, and what type of economic impact uh, will be a result of these changes. The certainty of future events always has a, a tremendous um, application for present actions, if you stop and think about it. If you were sure of what the future held or you were absolutely certain, then you would take actions today that would be based on the certainty of the events of tomorrow. And uh, it's interesting because without overstating the obvious, I believe that each one of us at one point or another wonders about the future. Folks everywhere tend to ask this same old question, and that's, what's this world coming to? What's this world coming to? And as we continue in our study of the book of Daniel, that's the, that question is answered in no uncertain terms. In fact, it's the focal point of our passage, and the answer will either escalate your sense of fear and dread about what the future holds, or it will affirm your com comfort and assurance as to what to expect. Daniel chapter 2, starting with verse 1, we read these words. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. It says, then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic and said, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretations. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will then declare the interpretations. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the, the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. As we take a look at this particular passage, there's going to be four points or four things I want to call to your attention that relate to this question of what's this world coming to. And this first particular uh, thing that I want to point out has to do with the reaction of Nebuchadnezzar. If you look back at verse 1, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, is, his reaction uh, to what's going on is one that's quite troubling. It says in verse 1, in the second year of the rain, he had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. The first thing I want to point out is he's very concerned about what was going on. Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to these dreams that he was having was one of great concern or agitation. He was troubled by what was taking place. And it was interesting as we take a look at this, and it's important to understand that this was no ordinary dream. This dream was a direct message from the throne of God himself. And the purpose of the message was to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. 
was to try to, as we would say in, in our culture today, God delivered to him a wake-up call. And that's what he was trying to do. Now, it's also important as we look at this so that there's not any confusion as to how God communicates with people today. Listen to me very carefully. Everything that God wants believers to know today is found in the Bible, the completed canon of Scripture. It's very important that we recognize and understand how God speaks to us today. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll see exactly what I'm, what I'm getting across, and that's this. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, we read these words as to how God communicates today. You know, oftentimes we hear on the news, and we heard, you know, recently, uh, you know, how the news can take things and distort it. You know, God spoke to Reggie White about Reggie's football career, and so the news automatically wants to make an issue of that. God is speaking to Reggie White. And what we need to recognize and understand is that God does speak to us, but he speaks to us differently than he spoke to those in the past. It's important to recognize that. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than there than they. Notice what he says in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. God would communicate to those prior to our time or the time after Jesus Christ and after the completed canon of the scripture. God would speak to people very, in various portions and in various ways. He would give bits and pieces of information that he wanted. He didn't give an entire revelation. Oftentimes he would give pieces of it and then he would later reveal what, the, what was coming after that. He spoke through a variety of means. And if you know anything about the Bible as you've gone through it, you recognize that God spoke directly to people. We saw that at the baptism of Jesus Christ when a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God spoke directly to people. He spoke directly to Moses. If you read Numbers chapter 12, God said, you know what? I'll speak directly to my servant Moses. As for you, speaking of those who were being critical of him in those days, he said, as for you, I will speak through visions and dreams and through the prophets. But as for my relationship with Moses, it's going to be a relationship where I speak directly to him. So God spoke through his word as it was at that particular time. Daniel 9.2 tells us that there was written word, that God had already written word that the Jews used and looked at. That's how Daniel knew the dietary laws that he obeyed the last time that we got together. So God spoke through the spoken word. He spoke through dreams. He spoke through visions. He spoke even through angels or angelic messengers. If you remember the story of Gabriel as he came to Mary, he told her that she would bear a child. God spoke in many different ways and in many portions. But the Bible clearly says, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son the final message of god is the person and the work of jesus christ and the completed canon of scripture that tells us everything that we need to know about the person and the work of god everything that he wants you to know about the past the present, and the future he speaks to us through the bible that's why it's critical that we recognize and understand that the bible is the inspired god breathed literally god breathed the word of god so that in it we may grow in our respect to our salvation and understand the things of god but understanding the context going back to Daniel chapter 2, now we need to recognize in the case of Daniel, however, divine revelation came to Nebuchadnezzar through a dream. And in fact, if you read it carefully, what seems to be confusing at first is it says that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed many dreams. All right. 
but that he had dreamed many dreams. But what's interesting about this, personally, as we'll go down through it, I, I think you'll begin to understand that he, although he dreamed many dreams, there was only one recurring theme to the dream. Because when he asked for the interpretation, he didn't say, interpret all the dreams I've been having. He's saying, interpret the one dream that I've been having, even though I've been dreaming it on a regular basis. You know, what's fascinating to me is, can you imagine for a moment how disturbed Nebuchadnezzar must have been? The Bible says that his sleep left him. He became an insomniac while he was protected on the outside by the guards and the fortresses that were set up in this new kingdom that he had. Yet, you know what? There was no peace in his heart. There was no peace in his life. He was walking, basically marching back and forth in the bedrooms and the confinement of the walls of his bedroom with no peace of heart at all. He was anxious. The Bible said he was troubled. The same word that Jesus used when he, when he told his disciples that he'd be leaving them. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The, the answer to anxiety today in the lives of many people is a relationship with the God who created them. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that God. He was troubled by what was going on. There was great fear in his heart. There was great anxiety. And you know what's amazing to me is if you stop and think about it, this man was king of the world. With all apologies to Leo DiCaprio in Titanic, Nebuchadnezzar was king of the world. He didn't just feel like he was. He was the king of the world. He had everything that this world had to offer. He had political power. He had fame. He had armies. He had protection. He had guards standing outside of his door. He had all the money that the world had to offer, all the material things you could ever want. And you know what? He, didn't, he did not have one thing, and that was he didn't have peace of mind. He didn't have peace with God. He was anxious and he was troubled. And well, he should be. You know, it's fascinating. Jesus went on to say this later. He said, you know what? What would a man exchange for his soul? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole wide world that loses his soul? What does it profit you or me if we gain everything that we set out to accomplish in life and yet have no peace of heart and peace of mind or peace with God? It's a fascinating thought because there are many of us who are in the same situation. You know, Linda and I, in our work with professional athletes, it didn't take long for us to understand the insecurities that go along with such a profession. You got men, men who sit around and wonder, how long is my career going to last? What's my world coming to? Not only what's this world coming to, the big picture, but you know what? So oftentimes we boil down to the simplest denomination, and that's this. Hey, you know what? A common denominator is, what's my world coming to? I'm not so concerned about what the rest of the world's coming to unless it affects my world. And we got guys who would sit around and they would sit and wonder, what's going to happen to my career? Who's my team going to draft? Who are they going to pick up? They're bringing in somebody trying out who's in my position. Could you imagine working in a place where uh, your, bosses would, your boss would bring in people to interview right in front of you when you still work there? And you would ask the question, uh, what's he or she here for? Uh, actually, they're here to see if uh, we can uh, hire them to take your job. There's a certain amount of insecurity that goes along with that. Or we'd have guys that would sit around and they'd be praying about who this team was going to draft or who they're going to pick up. And they'd go, oh man, we just picked up this guy in the first round. They're going to pay him $8 million signing bonus. He plays my position. Uh, who do you think is going to play? Insecurity. Fear. Anxiety. Or they sit around and wonder, you know what, am I, is this ankle going to heal? Is my foot going to heal? Is my leg going to heal? Is it a three-week, six-week, six-month, two-year? What's the rehab going to be? How long is my world going to last as I know it? Isn't it fascinating that Nebuchadnezzar wrestled with the same things that we do? The timeless truth of the Word of God? And that's this. He just conquered the world and he couldn't get a good night's sleep. 
I don't know about you, but I think there's a lot of irony to that. Some of you are in the same position. How long is my business going to last? How long is the construction boom going to go? How long is the stock market going to keep going up? Is it going to go up long enough until we can cash out and then retire? How long is all this going to last? And we become anxious and we become, we become worrisome. We pace back and forth wondering or we sit and we watch CNN so we can continually track what's going on in the world around us. How long is all this going to last? Nebuchadnezzar is no different than us because there's nothing new under the sun. King Solomon had the same trouble. Everything he wanted in life he had. And you know his final conclusion was this. You know what? Hey, who can find enjoyment in life without knowing the God who created him? Who can have enjoyment without him? See, Nebuchadnezzar got a wake-up call from God. God was trying to get his attention, and it was easy to do because he was looking at Nebuchadnezzar saying, Hey, man, you accomplished everything you set out to accomplish, and you don't have any peace in your life. You can't even get a good night's sleep. What's your world coming to, brother? God was trying to get his attention, and he was doing it quite well, actually. And there's a principle of this verse that I want to share with you. It's important that we recognize and understand it, and that's this. Neither position of greatness nor personal ability can provide mental peace and security. Neither position of greatness nor personal ability can provide mental peace and security. True peace of mind is the monopoly of God's people. As we know the word of God and as we believe what it says and we apply it in our life, God gives us peace of mind. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. The Bible says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why? He says, In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's no coincidence when you look at the world around you and you see people that seemingly have everything going for them except one thing, they have no peace of mind. They're anxious of heart. And the world that has everything looks at people who seemingly have nothing and seemingly are in the midst of adverse circumstances in life and yet they see God's people with a peace that surpasses all understanding and our hearts and minds are guarded by Christ Jesus and they look at us and ask, why aren't you worried? Why aren't you troubled? Why aren't you anxious about what's going on? And the answer is very simple because God has it all under control. Isn't that a fascinating truth as we look at the life of Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar was a man who was riddled with anxiety and, and he was riddled with worrisome, worrisome activities in his heart so much so that he couldn't even sleep anymore. And it's fascinating as we look at all this, we're going to see a tremendous contrast between Nebuchadnezzar who can't get a good night's sleep when everything in his life is going well and then contrasted to a man who's about to be sentenced to death and he has no fear and trepidation whatsoever. It's fascinating understanding of the things of God. But so Nebuchadnezzar is concerned, and, and rightfully so, and uh, this dream, this wake-up call that God sent him has got his attention. So Nebuchadnezzar does what so many of us do in life. Look at verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. What does he do? He issues a command. What's the command to do? Hey, let's form a committee. When troubled in life, man typically wants to form a committee. We can't understand what's going on. Let's form a committee. And what's interesting about it, and I don't really have, you know, I mean, committees, sometimes they, they actually accomplish things. Uh, but for the most part, what I found to be true in most committee meetings I ever sat in, that was that they have a way of endless, endlessly speculating as to what the cause of the problem is while never offering any solutions. And you're going to find that this committee is pretty much 
that typical committee. We need to form a committee. I need to know what's going on. I'm going to call all these guys in. We're going to form a committee. We're going to try to figure out what's happening. And you know what? I, you know, let, let me make something clear. There is safety in a multitude of counselors. That's very important to understand. But the safety that's found in a multitude of counselors is only found when the counselors are men and women who think from God's divine perspective they have a clear understanding of the Word of God and they're not hesitant to share what the Word of God has to say in order that the people that are struggling with the problem can see what the source is and also see what God's solution is. There's safety in a multitude of counselors, but the counselors better be people who understand the things of God and not just from their own perspective or their own philosophy or their own opinion. So as you seek out counsel, seek out those who understand God's perspective of life and can share with you what he has to say because in the word we find truth and the truth always sets us free from the problems that we're struggling with. So he forms this committee and the committee, as you take a look at this, which is a fascinating committee, by the way, uh, and, and you look at who these wise men and we take a real clear look at this committee. As we study this committee of court officials, this would be more like a State Department meeting. There's a lot of problems going on in the kingdom. The, the, the king can't sleep at night. He's an insomniac. He's anxious. He's riddled with this anxiety. And so he calls everybody together. It's the head of the State Department saying, we got problems and I need to know what the solution's going to be. Now look at who he calls together. And it is fascinating to me that there is nothing new under the sun. The names are strange to us, but listen what their roles or their task or function is. And you'll see that, you know what? Hey, we live in a world that does the same thing. Number one, the magicians. The magicians weren't people who pulled rabbits out of a hat. The magicians are people who wrote things down and they interpreted hieroglyphics, so that would make them a, 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 a magician. I don't know if you've ever seen scratchings on the wall and try to figure out what it said, but their job was to write things down and the magicians were the legal department of this particular administration. And the reason that Nebuchadnezzar called in the magicians or the legal department, he wanted to know if there was any precedent that had already been set for the dream that he was struggling with. What he was going to ask them to do is, hey, go through all the books, go through all the writings. I want you to find out if any king before me ever had the same type of dream and what was the dream and what was its interpretation. And so he was looking for legal precedent. We see that happen all the time in administrations. They call on the staff and say, look, you know what, we need to know, is there any precedent for what's taking place here? And that's what their role was. That's what they were to do. The second thing is the conjurers or the astrologers. And what's fascinating, the word or the verb means this, to whisper, to breathe, to blow. It's kind of like mumbo-jumbo people, State Department. Uh, which State Department would be complete without having people who were involved in an intelligence agency? That's what these men did. They were involved in the central intelligence agency of this particular empire. Their job, astrology, had to do with charting stars. We see that today. But their job was to try to figure out what was going on in, in the country surrounding them so that they knew what type of action to take today. Isn't that interesting? They were an intelligent agency. They would go out and find out what was going on, what uprisings were taking place, what political powers were about to, to, to arise in certain areas so they could feed that information to the king and the king could then do something about it before it became too late. That's what their job was. That's what their role was. Uh, the third position that they mentioned is sorcerers, which has to do with PR people. Their job was to entertain the dignitaries of foreign nations or other conquered lands that would be invited to the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. They were the spin doctors of today. Their job was to make sure that they got information out in a proper way so that the public bought what they were saying and there, there was no unrest in the kingdom. 
Their job was to tell people what they wanted to hear, basically. They were the politically correct people of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, domain. It's interesting when you go down through and look at this. The Chaldeans, which is an interesting uh, group of people, their job was to manipulate others through religion. That's what they did. They held the masses in fear by manipulating them through religion of some sort. They practiced uh, witchcraft and idolatry, and it was interesting as we see that. And the other uh, position that's not mentioned in 2 is mentioned in uh, uh, 2.27, and there were the soothsayers. Called these people in. Their job was to communicate with the gods. And once the gods spoke, they would then take action as to what direction people should go in the future. And so this is the committee that he forms, and as he puts all this together, it's fascinating as they stood before him. Notice his command and the consequences that come forth. So he calls this group of people together, calls his heads of states in. They're all going to represent a different area of expertise. They're going to help him understand what dream this was that he was having and what it had to do with the kingdom and the future of the kingdom. Had to answer the question, what's my world coming to from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective? And this is what he said to him. And look at the command that we see here in verse 3. And the king said to these men in this high-level cabinet meeting, he said, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. And that's an important transition that takes place from this point until uh, we find in chapter 7 where there's a transition in the language that's used. And Aramaic was a language that was used for common man. What we're about to see happen here is God addressing the world at large, which also includes us. So he speaks to them, he, they speak to him in Aramaic as we see this, and they say, O king, live forever. Don't you like that? You have a boss that wants you to talk to him like that? And he'd like it, wouldn't he? You got someone like that? He'd just walk in and say, oh, oh, boss, may you live forever. You know, that, now that was, you know, you talk about kissing up. Right there is it, I mean, in its truest form. Oh, king, live forever. Look what he says. Tell the dream to your servants, and then we'll declare the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. It says, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation... You will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. In the King James, it says, a dunghill. Listen to what he's saying. If you don't tell me, have you ever had a boss that you thought got nutso? Can you imagine this guy? He's, he's losing it, man. He's falling over the edge. God has him so so afraid about what's going to happen here. He's about ready to slip over the edge. I had a boss like that once. I mean, the guy was nuts. This guy's nuts. Look, he says, if you don't tell me the dream and the interpretation, I'm going to have you torn apart, limb from limb. I'm going to have you ripped apart piece by piece. Then I'm going to have your house torn down. And then we're going to throw your pieces on top of where your house used to be. And then we're going to turn your house site into a porta potty and everybody in my kingdom, that's where they're going to have to go relieve themselves. The guy is nuts. I've seen coaches like that. This guy is crazy. His command, notice what he says, first of all, what's kind of interesting. But you know what, this guy is, this guy is driven by emotion. Because look at also he says, Oh, but, if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you'll receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Gifts has to do with money. Reward has to do with material possessions, new chariots, new palaces, whatever they want, new clothing, whatever you want. And great honor has to do with, you know, they'll probably have a better parking place, I guess, for their chariot outside the palace. You know, even with their name and stuff on it, really cool stuff. 
He says, so, you know, on one hand, I'm going to rip you apart piece by piece, destroy your house, throw your pieces on top of that, and then we're going to have everybody relieve themselves on, your, uh, on you, uh, what's left of you. But on the other hand, if you do, do as I ask you to do, you will have great rewards. We got what we call here the confusion of the wise men. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to act. They don't know what to say because the guy is nuts. So look at their response. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. That had been, up to that point, how they did business with the king. The king would say, I had a dream or I had a vision, and he would was, and then they would just tell him whatever they thought he wanted to hear. Nebuchadnezzar is the sharpest tack in the box. He recognizes where these guys are coming from because they probably blew smoke at a lot of people, and he understood their tactics and how they did business. So that he was so frightened by this dream, he had to make sure there was absolutely no question in his mind that the interpretation that he got was the correct interpretation because it had to do with the future of his world. Where was he heading in the future and where was all this going to end? It's interesting too, as I was studying and I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but be reminded of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who said this. He said, if you, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. It's kind of like the old philosophy out west, you know, gunslinger. You go into town and you shoot the fastest gun in town, but you know what? You spend your nights laying awake at night wondering who's faster than you. Nebuchadnezzar went and he destroyed the world. He took it. God gave it to him. He didn't realize that, but he took it. He took it by force. And now as he laid awake at night, he wondered how long his kingdom would last until the next stronger, toughest gun came marching into town. Interesting, isn't it? As we look at this and we see the confusion of these wise men, they go back to him a second time and say, look, okay, we've talked it over. And if you just tell us what the dream is, we'll be able to tell you what the interpretation is. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm. The decree that he issued was, if you do not tell me the dream and you do not tell me the interpretation, you're dead men. So they got together and they were concerned as to what their world was coming to. It's interesting, we start out with one frightened man and pretty soon the whole cabinet's scared. And so they go back and they huddle together as a group and they say, man, what are we going to do? How are we going to answer this guy? This guy's flipped his wagon. What are we going to say? And so Nebuchadnezzar knows this. He understands what makes these guys tick. He says, hey, he says, if you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. He knew them. He knew their character, a lack of it. He knew they got together and came up with a game plan. The game plan was, hey, you know what? We need to just keep buying time till this emotional outburst that he has goes away. He's nuts. And so they all conspired together, and that was their game plan. And they came back a second time saying, look, you know, we've been talking it over, and we can't tell you the, the, the interpretation of the dream until you tell us the dream. So they were going back and forth, and Nebuchadnezzar about had it. He says... And he goes before him and says, until a situation has changed, therefore tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, and here's what I like. Up to this point, it's really fascinating, isn't it? Up to this point, these men were amazed at their own brilliance. They understood chemistry, they understood math, they understood the laws of science, and they understood natural reactions. They studied these things. And so for the most part, they were really impressive. And they even thought themselves to be very impressive. But now they've got a major problem on their hands and they don't know what to do about it. And Nebuchadnezzar said, that's enough. 
I don't want to hear it again. You're just trying to buy time. You tell me my dream and tell me the interpretation. He was losing it. Or I'm going to kill you. They didn't know what to do. So here's what they decided. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, well, here, here's our typical out when we're in a jam. Typical human beings. Here's our out. See if you can't relate to this. Number one, there's not a man on earth who can declare the matter for the king. And as much as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there's no one else who can declare it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling place isn't with mortal flesh. Okay, what's their out? Number one, have you ever used this excuse? There isn't any human being that can do what you're asking me to do. It is absolutely impossible. There's no human being on the face of the earth that can do what you want us to do. Nobody can do this. It's impossible. There's no, what? There's no precedent for it. We've checked all the books. There's no legal precedent. You're asking us to do something no one's ever asked anybody to do in the history of the world. The legal department, that sounds like something they come up with. There's no legal precedent. Oh, it sounds like a lot of churches, by the way, too. We've never done that before. Oh, okay, well, then I guess it can't be done. That's typical human response. Just because it can't be done doesn't mean that it can't be done. Just because you can't do it doesn't mean somebody else can't do it. Their out was no one can do this. They go on and says, you know what? No great king. Don't you like this? Listen. No great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. What were they saying? Hey, if you're a great king, don't you think so? You're a great king, huh? Then you wouldn't ask this because no great king would ever ask this. Implied, a wacko nut would. But they didn't say that. That wouldn't have been a wise thing to say. Oh, king, live forever. <laughs> but on the other hand, no great king would ever ask this. And the third thing he says, and I like this, and that's this. You know what? And this, came from the, this must have came from the soothsayers. Hey, you know what? Only the gods can answer this. I like that. You know why I like that? Because it's setting the stage for the capability of God. Isn't that good stuff? I mean, that's where this is all heading. This is all heading that God is setting the stage for what he's about to do. There's some things here that are kind of interesting. Nebuchadnezzar's slow burn finally exploded. You know, think about it. Not only would he rid himself of the heads of state, but look what it says here. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious. Verse 12, gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men would be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Don't miss this. I'm reading through this. I'm just like, I can't. can you imagine being in this position? It'd be like this. You're being interviewed for a job. You're hired for the job. And a month after you're working at this new place where you finally got this great job, the marshal comes in, they raid the office, everybody gets arrested because of some illegal type of operation. And you get hauled off to jail with everybody else, and you're like, but, 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 I just started working here. That's all, I'm... Or it's like I've had a friend who's a coach, hundreds of applicants for a coaching position. He gets hired by this coach at a, I, I, I won't say, anyway, at, for, at a place where they coach. He gets hired as an assistant coach to work with the head coach. Out of hundreds of people who apply for the job, he gets hired. Two weeks later, the head coach and all of his assistants get fired. Now, I don't know about you, but typically here's what we usually say. God, what's up with this? I don't understand this. We begin to question the timing of God. We begin to question whether, God, is your hand really in this? 
I mean, we prayed about this. You led us into this position. I get hired by this, by this company or I get hired by this team and, and I've got this position and now two weeks later I'm fired with everybody else. Hey, this is a great example of the principle that's very true and that's this. Hey, you know what? Sometimes the innocent, sometimes the innocent suffer with the guilty. And that's why it's so important that we take a good hard look at who we associate with because if they're doing things that are wrong, we're going to be guilty by association. Probably one of the best books you'll ever read is a book called Twice Pardoned by a guy named Harold Morris. Harold Morris was sitting in the car when his friends went into a 7-Eleven uh, store, robbed it, killed a person that was in it, got back in the car, drove away. He never even knew what took place in the store. A year later, the FBI came to his house, knocked on the door, identified themselves, took him to prison, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. It's a wonderful story about the danger of who we associate with on a regular basis. Fortunately, God was able to do a great work in his life in prison and he now goes around telling high school kids the importance of making sure that your friends are the kind of people that you want to spend time with. But you know what? Here's Daniel, guilty by association. And what's fascinating as we take a look at this, that Daniel, you know what? Never questioned God's timing. Say, God, why did you do this to me? In fact, in almost every chapter of the book of Daniel, as we'll see, Daniel will face a crisis. He will face a crisis. The dietary incident that we talked about in chapter 1, that was just a dry run for what he's going through right now. That was nothing compared to this. This man and his friends, their life is on the line. Their life is on the line. But you know what's fascinating to me is this. As we will see as we continue to go through this particular chapter, we will see that Daniel and his friends have confidence in God. And the reason they have confidence in God is because they have a heart that's filled with the Word of God. They know God. They know His character. They have a relationship with Him. And they know this about God that so many of us forget, and that's this, that God is in control of all things. And while sometimes we mistakenly believe that, you know what, God, where, where are you? And, and didn't you see what's going on? And how can you allow this to happen? And how can I get a job and two weeks later get thrown in prison with people? And I didn't even do anything, God. And we begin to question God's timing, but Daniel never did because he knew God. He knew God and his heart was filled with the word of God. And it's fascinating as we go through this that, that, that God raised up this man in a time of crisis. And as we go through and recognize what he does, does the, the pressure that he went through equips him to be able to handle the crisis. And God uses him to address the question that we'll have to get into next week. And that's this. What's this world coming to? But in closing this first portion of what we've learned so far, let me just share with you five things that God impressed upon me as I went through and studied this and put it together. The first thing is this. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. When we get to the point in life where we realize there is nothing that I can do, this is so far out of my ability to handle it, It is so far out of my realm to control it. It is beyond all the human resources that I could ever gather together. I can't do this. That extreme condition is God's opportunity to get through to you and to me. Nebuchadnezzar had everything the world had to offer, but he didn't have peace of mind. And the troubling dream that God sent to him was going to be God's way of revealing himself to this man and revealing this man's need to come into a right relationship with the God who created him. Man's extremity is always God's opportunity to reveal himself and the stage is set as we'll see. The second thing is this and I know this is very oh hard for us to listen to and I know it's not politically correct 
But hu human wisdom is futile. Human wisdom is futile when it comes to divine viewpoint. This cabinet members that he got gained together, the heads of state, they knew math, they knew science, they knew the stars, they knew it all from an earthly perspective. But you know what? They knew nothing when it came to who God is and what he can do. They knew nothing. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Even in our great intellect and education, we still don't understand the depth and the comprehension of God. We will as we go through this, but human wisdom is futile. We need a divine viewpoint if we're going to be able to withstand the pressure in a crisis situation. Third thing is God always has a man for the crisis. God always has a man for the crisis. The question to ask yourself is this. Would you be that person that God could use in a time of crisis? And the reason that he used Daniel is because Daniel was prepared. And you know why Daniel was prepared? Because Daniel ingested the word of God on a daily basis. He had constant fellowship with God. He knew where to turn for the answers. And continually, he had the word of God before him. In his heart, he had it so that he wouldn't sin against God. God always has a person ready in time of crisis. The question is, who's that person going to be? If you're prepared knowing the word of God, God can use you. Daniel's not unique in history. God always uses people that are prepared. Daniel just happened to be one of those people at that time that was prepared by knowing the word of God. The fourth thing is fascinating is this. Great men often are the most miserable and frightened people that you'll ever meet. I was reading a biography of Richard Nixon as he was talking to Charles Colson. And he said to him one day as they were standing looking out over the Rose Garden and looking out to all the masses of people who line up. If you've ever been in Washington, D.C., they line up outside Pennsylvania Avenue and they loop around to the front to go into a tour of the White House. Colson records in his book, he says, you know what, Chuck Colson was, was standing there and he was chief counsel to Richard Nixon at the time. And Nixon looked at him and said, Chuck, you know what, people want a president like Charles de Gaulle, someone who is aloof from from all the masses of people. They want somebody they can separate and look up to. They don't want to know everything about them. They, want, they don't want to know their fears and insecurities. They need to, to keep them at a distance so they can feel comfortable and confident that this person is in control. But the interesting thing is, as you are exposed to people who seem to be great on the outside, you'll find that those are the people in life with the greatest insecurities. Because you know what? They know they're not as great as people want them to be. And also, there are also the people who tend to panic and push buttons when they don't have the answers and don't know what to do. We need to recognize that. And the fifth thing is this, as we close this particular section, that's, you know what? A crisis, any crisis, provides maximum opportunities for God's people be, to be used to witness to a world that lives in fear. Any crisis will give you an opportunity to be used by God to testify of the greatness of God and that God is in control. This is going to be a wonderful study as we experience the truth of the Word of God. What's this world coming to? Hey, don't miss it because God wants you to know. He wants you to know not only what your world's coming to, but He wants you to know what the world's coming to. And He clearly identifies the truth that'll set us free. Be back and see how Daniel becomes a man who God uses in a time of great national crisis to reveal the greatness of God. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together.
We just thank you today that it's Mother's Day and we just praise all the women that are here and all the sacrifices they've made throughout all of our lives. God, may today be a special day of blessing, not only for them, but all of us, as we recognize the sovereignty that you have over all things. God, you are, in a, you are God who is in control. And as we learn from the life of Daniel, you're a God who wants to use people prepared for a time of crisis to bring you praise and glory. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.